watchers in the fourth dimension. We deal with the odd, the unexplained. Can you seriously expect me to believe that? Where are my shoes? Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And he's more unconscious than anyone I've ever seen. This episode, we return, now in colour because you can definitely see this podcast, to kickstart an exciting new era of the show with the third Doctor's debut in Spearhead from Space. But before we talk about the story, we're going to quickly do the mail, which Riley has been diligently digitally opening for the last month or so since we last recorded. See, Don, I got it right. Riley, over to you. All right. Well, let's start with the email first. Stephen Hawley, also known as Castorosa on Instagram, says, I just wanted to say how much I enjoy this podcast. I recently caught up due to an unintended hiatus, a catch up that involved me binging about 15 episodes in three to four days. Every episode is a joy to listen to, and I'm so glad there are many more to come. Thank you, Stephen. I hope that there are many more to come, too. Now, let's move on to Facebook. And, oh, this is just mostly people complimenting Julie. So we can just skip that one, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, let's massage that ego. Okay. J.M. Casey, uh, in regards to the Space Pirate, says, Like Anthony... This is one I really wanted to like for a while, since I'm so attracted to the beginning of things. I like the first two or three episodes when I don't yet know where the story will go, where there's a whole lot of world building that manages to be mildly interesting. Once you know where the story is going, what's the point anymore? All that's set up in the beginning, and it just comes down to a bunch of stupid people being stupid, but especially Madeline. I know she's the only woman in the story besides Zoe, but she really does make everything worse. <laughs> Additionally... Also, I don't know why, but it feels an age since Julie got to do a summary (laughs) and we get singing. Excellent. Fantastic. I'm glad people enjoy that. Oh, well, there's more. David Campbell, in regards to Julie's view of the sniper ending scene and the war games, says, Good call from Julie. I always assumed it was a resistance sniper who saved the doctor from his firing squad cliffhanger. And then we have Nathan Laws also in the war games saying, I used to binge watch this serial a lot on school vacations. It's amazing how even at 10 parts, it's easy just to watch in one sitting. I agree with that. I think you're on your own for that, Nathan. 10 parts in one sitting? Good God. (laughs) (laughs) J.M. Casey, back again, the sum on the war game, says, Fantastic, guys. In a longer episode than usual, this one truly deserved it. So much can be said about this one. It's hard to even know where to start. I think I'll have to listen to both installments again and think about it. Also on the ending, he says that it is really, really sad moment. I love the ending, but hate what they did to Jamie and Zoe. The Time Lords really are the worst. I think we're a lot of agreement on that side, on that one, mm-hmm. Jamie Casey. Mm-hmm. And also from Facebook, we have something from Alan Seiler, our honorary fifth watcher on the second part of the War Games. Exceptional episode. You raise an awful lot of points about it that I'd never considered before, particularly about the regeneration and what it meant for this doctor and for the series up to this point. A very enjoyable listen. Thank you. And lastly, and this is no statement on social networking apps, Instagram, Badger Spark, in regards to Black Adder and the War Game, says, I kept waiting for the court martial to mention Speckled Jim and for Jamie to try to rescue the doctor with a small painted wooden duck. So. <laughs> Yes, we would have loved to have seen that too. So if you'd like to send us a message, you can comment on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we can be found at at Watchers4D, or you can drop us an email at Watchers4D at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review on your preferred podcast app. 
And that's the mail. Over to you. Thank you, Riley. All right, so now we are actually going to start talking about the story, and looking behind the scenes, we have rather a lot to cover. This story really does establish a new era of the show, and one that had been planned as far back as the summer of 1968, and just as a reminder, this went out in January 1970. Anyway, summer 1968. Producers Peter Bryant and Derek Sherwin, they had been delighted with the success of The Web of Fear, and they started discussing revamping the show's format to focus on the modern day and near future. With this in mind, Sherwin wrote The Invasion as a pilot for this new approach and established some of the building blocks for the Brave New Era, bringing back Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart and establishing UNIT. Around the start of 1969, with it known that Patrick Troughton would be leaving the show, the BBC actually briefly considered cancelling the show altogether and replacing it with either a new Quatermass serial or adaptations of the works of Jules Verne. However, by the spring, it'd been decided that the show should get at least one more season, and the green light was given to the new approach. And with that, Sherwin, Bryant, and co. started, again, building towards it, and we've already covered what happens in the war games to set this up. John Pertwee was cast as the new Doctor, following input from BBC head of drama Sean Sutton, who was an old friend of Pertwee's. Pertwee himself had a fairly interesting life prior to Doctor Who. He became a circus performer while still in high school, then moved into repertory theatre and was eventually contracted by the BBC as an actor at the age of 18. During World War II, he served in the Royal Navy and was eventually attached to the Naval Intelligence Division, where he served alongside James Bond author Ian Fleming and reported directly to the Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill. How cool is that? After the war, Pertwee returned to acting, starring alongside our very own William Hartnell in 1953's Will Any Gentleman, and was also in several of the Carry On films, and a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. However, he was probably best known for being the voice of Chief Officer Pertwee on the extremely popular radio comedy, The Navy Lark. And yes, his character was named after himself. Additionally, with Fraser Hines and Wendy Padbury leaving the show, and Nicholas Courtney returning as the Brigadier, the production team started to plan for a new female companion. At first, consideration was given to bringing back Isabel Watkins from The Invasion, but Sherwin and script editor Terence Dix decided that they wanted to move in a different direction and envisioned a character more mature and intelligent than previous companions. The result was Dr. Liz Shaw, a scientist. Cast as the character was Caroline John, who had predominantly been a theatre actor up to this point in her career, having toured with both the Royal Shakespeare Company and the National Theatre Company. And if you're not from the UK, those are a big deal. Now, of course, there was one further big change with the new season that we have already alluded to, the move to colour. This was necessitated by BBC One's move to fully broadcasting in colour, although it is worthy of note that the majority of homes did not yet have colour TV sets which meant that a lot of households were still watching the show in black and white. So if you want some authenticity, turn down your contrast, watch these in black and white. You won't regret it. Or you might. Up to you. With this change, as well as a new lead actor, a new title sequence was needed. And the production team once again brought in Bernard Lodge, who had produced the original two title sequences. And his intention here was to use the same howl-around technique used in those original two. But once he actually did it, he really was unhappy with the technique's results in colour. So what he eventually did was he filmed around shifting diamond patterns in black and white and then tinted them with colour gels using an optical printer. And then on top of that, he added the new logo and Pertwee's face to the sequence. Now, to write the adventure that would be relaunching the show, Terence Dix turned to Robert Holmes, who had previously written The Crossons and The Space Pirates. 
Taking a collaborative approach to storylining, Dix, Holmes, and Sherwin conceived a creature that would travel through space in segments requiring reassembly when it reached the planet that it's intended to conquer. They also decided to pair this with Sherwin's growing discomfort with the emerging technology of plastics. He felt that shop window dummies were exceedingly eerie and suggested that a doll factory would make a suitably creepy setting. In February 1969, Holmes was formally commissioned to write the story under the title of Facsimile, and by the end of June, with the scripts complete, the story was retitled to that title which we know and love, Spearhead from Space. Over the summer of 1969, Pertwee's take on the Doctor was starting to take form, and the actor turned to his friend Sean Sutton for feedback. Bryant had originally intended for Pertwee to play the Doctor more comedically, but Pertwee opted, somewhat unusually for him, for a more serious turn, with Sutton advising him to play the role as himself. The costume came together when Pertwee turned up to a publicity photo shoot donning a velvet smoking jacket, frilly shirt, and an Inverness cape. And the look stuck. Costume designer Christine Rawlins developed the variants on this outfit used throughout the season, taking inspiration from the Edwardian aesthetics of the Adam Adamant Lives TV show. Filming for Spearhead from Space began in mid-September 1969, and assigned as director was Derek Martinus, returning to the show for the sixth and final time. He had, of course, previously directed Galaxy 4, Mission to the Unknown, The Tenth Planet, The Evil of the Daleks, and The Ice Warriors. Studio strikes at the BBC meant that they couldn't use any studios for filming, and the whole serial was shot on location, which meant that it's the only serial in Classic Who that was filmed totally on 16mm film, which was more practical for location shooting. This allowed the serial to be edited in ways that other Doctor Who serials up to this point could not be, and it also meant that returning composer Dudley Simpson could tailor his score to the action rather than having to record the score in advance so that it could be piped into the studio as the actors did their parts. And of course, in the 21st century, the fact that this was recorded on film has also allowed this story to be made available in native high definition. Working as designer on this story, we have Paul Allen, who was last seen designing The Seeds of Death. As costumer, Christine Rawlins, who's already been mentioned, will be the costumer for all of season seven. She was not happy to be assigned to Doctor Who, as she very vehemently did not like science fiction. With that being said, she's probably best known for her work on Doctor Who, Terry Nation's Survivors, Crime Traveller, and acclaimed fantasy series The Box of Delights, so that clearly worked out well for her. With that enormous amount of behind-the-scenes information out of the way, I'm frankly fed up of talking. Julie, we're over to you for the short summary. Meteors keep falling from the sky And Unit can't seem to pinpoint where they often lie Always seem too late Those meteors keep falling from the sky They keep falling So they just need help from our favourite Weird Time Lord And Misha really didn't like the way he got things done Sleeping on the job, those meteors keep falling from the sky, they keep falling. But there's one thing I know, the Auton Centipede us won't defeat us. It won't be long till the doctor wakes and ends the crisis. Meteors keep falling from the sky, but that doesn't mean my eyes should see creepy plastic dolls. <laughs> Mannequins aren't for me, because I'm never going to stop the meters by complaining, because now they're gone, they're all melted and gone. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. <laughs> Everyone liked my singing, based on our feedback. 
so I continued that trend. We are happy to give the audience what you want, guys. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Episode one, and we start with a already mentioned new title sequence in color, new logo. The colors, Duke, the colors. <laughs> they really went for it, didn't they? Yes. <laughs> I would like to register a complaint. Shockingly, not about the move to color. I know I've joked about that before. Is it the themes? It's it's not the themes. Oh, okay. You can either keep guessing or I can tell you what my complaint is. It's entirely <laughs> up to you. Is it the new logo? No, it's not. <laughs> I think they missed an opportunity here because for this first episode, I don't think they should have included Pertwee in the title sequence. I also ah. really don't think they should have included him falling out of the TARDIS. It ruins the mystery of, you know, who is this guy in the hospital if you obviously see him falling out of it. I think they missed a trick there. I yeah. also think, and this is, I know we were probably going to do a side episode about season 6B. This makes the Time Lords look even more like jerks because they force a regeneration on him shove him in the TARDIS and just let him land wherever, knowing full well it, it never quite comes out very well at first. They couldn't even let him get over his regeneration sickness. I mean, we've always known they were jerks. But so. still, that's just <laughs> insult to injury. Yeah, that's fair. But ignoring that, we get to focus on the most nervous guy in the world, along with his co-worker that we will never see again. Yeah, he was sweating a lot. And maybe it's because I was watching this on Blu-ray in HD, but wow, you could really see it. Man. He's selling that flop sweat. <laughs> <laughs> Still, I like the way that this story established it. We get a nice establishing shot of Earth, which I think is the first time we really get that. Something that becomes hugely prevalent in modern Who, particularly in the RTD era, before they set the scene with Don, as, as you said, Mr. Flop Sweat. <laughs> as he came to be known. Yes. Well, the thing that was very striking to me, and I think this would have been resolved if Don's idea was put into action and that we were given the mystery of who is this person, is that, did anyone else notice that when the Doctor falls out of the TARDIS, TARDIS looking a bit rickety. That thing was oh. bent in quite a bit. It didn't just look rickety, it sounded rickety. I was just sitting there listening to it and I was like, oh, poor baby. He's also not wearing Troughton's clothes. Oh, he was. Those weren't his pants. They let them down for Pertwee and they were still too short for him. Those were not his pants. I don't care what they say. They did not have... <laughs> no. <laughs> one of the things I really noticed is, and we'll get to a whole bunch of these different things, but one of the notes I had was the flute music is amazing, but it's <laughs> definitely spy inspired, which is this oh, yeah. whole serial is all spy inspired. We'll get to multiple reasons why it's spy inspired, but the first thing that really clued me in was the music. And they had music in this, yes. which was nice. The thing is, yeah. what really struck me was we talk about how in the new era, specifically when RTD came out and we get Rose, and that was essentially a soft reboot of the series. Mm -hmm. This was too. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. They don't mention really any previous companions. They don't mention the Time Lords. You've got Liz coming in for a job interview and sort of explaining oh, hey, well, we investigate the weird and the unexplained. Then you've got Flopswit guy talking about unit and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they're really just setting it up as if no one has ever seen it before. What I had a question on, and I think it wasn't really until another episode, but this really goes into it, is they don't mention anything from the past. And one of the biggest clues was when the doctor said he doesn't remember. 
but how much doesn't he remember? That wasn't very clear to me because I was like, well, if he doesn't remember everything, then how in the world does he know who Lethbridge Stewart is? But I think it might just be the actual trial into his forest regeneration, but I'm not sure. Or it could be that he doesn't remember season 6B, right, Dunn? Right. <laughs> Entirely possible. I mean, where did that watch come from? I looked up that watch. That watch was amazing. And that watch is... I'm going to mispronounce it as a Swiss watchmaker called Samir, uh, C-I-M-I-E-R. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Some site I found claimed to actually have that actual watch that was in the show. And it's already been sold for 350 pounds. That was, who knows how long ago that was. But they also have other ones of that same make and model from the same time period, vintage, for 275 pounds. So if anyone's interested in buying that for me, I would greatly appreciate it. <laughs> Wait, you said £275? Yes. That's what, like $400 in today's money? That's not bad. No, it's not, and it's a vintage, yeah. I'm surprised. Okay. I would also like to point out that what was really striking to me, and you already mentioned it, Anthony, is that no studio sets, everything on location. Yeah. It has its pluses and minuses. I personally liked it because of how striking of a change was. It made the show feel more like a documentary, that real feel that you would get from like fake documentaries or something like that in one particular scene where it really feels like that and i was very impressed with it was that when the brigadier shows up to the hospital and the porter is tipped off the press and then the brigadier gets swarmed by the press notice that the camera changes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. handheld it switches to a diegetic camera and i just thought that was very clever and a really nice touch there's something about the no sets just showing you on location that makes the thing feel more real and don't get me wrong because i really like Absolutely fantastical dreamlike studio sets. I think they're great. I love it. But this is an interesting turn. Particularly that shot when the press are talking to Lethbridge Stewart. It's very news bulletin in style. The angle mm -hmm. being used, it does give that impression of reporters on site. It also looks really good because it was shot on film. Yes. And let's face yeah. it, who is not going to look this good again for a long time? <laughs> mm -mm. <laughs> very long time so we get a lot of our setup here though we get the porter calling the sing-ins we have the doctor mumbling about shoes it's kind of nice and then we get <laughs> the brigadier showing up to look at him this whole thing because we also get the introduction of two hearts and more lore and to me it seemed kind of a weird place to do this however many seasons in mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then you think he's just trying to find an excuse to get the brigadier to the hospital bed. Yep. It's yeah. already been established unit deals with yeah. the unexplained. And I found this hilarious to completely make this change to the doctor just for plot convenience, even though you could have just had him laying out there like, oh, we found him in a field and he was near this thing and they called him in for that. But still, it was just like, okay, so we're stuck with this forever because of this yep. thing. <laughs> And that is so Robert Holmes. He does this time and time again with making changes to lore just for a plot contrivance. You'll see him do it with something like The Deadly Assassin, and it's stuck. This is the first time he does it. Hilarious. I love it. So I have a weird thing to talk about with the phone, and it's probably just a me thing. But why is there always a yellow phone? I grew up with a phone that looked exactly like the phone that was on that wall, except it was buttons instead of a rotary phone. And I, time and time again, I've seen it in that 70s show. I've seen it in so many sitcoms. What is going on? Yeah, my grandparents had a yellow phone. I don't know. The one in my parents' house was yellow too. That was just how it looked. And we uh, liked it. 
My dad kept that phone. It is now in his house. (laughs) (laughs) There are two things I specifically want to talk about with this episode. The first is the introduction of Sam Seeley, the poacher. Our comedy yokel. I was going to say, that is the character archetype that we will see through the Pertwee era, the comedy yokel. I did have a question for you regarding him and his wife. Is that a West Country accent? Yes. It very much reminded me of Hot Fuzz. (laughs) Yes, it is, which, given that the story was filmed in Essex, doesn't fit at all. They're on opposite sides of London from each other. I didn't particularly care for Sam Seeley, but I really loved his wife. She was awesome. I have a question about him and his wife, and this is a deep reference, but is there a reason why he and his wife are dressed like the main characters from the Andy Cap newspaper comic? Because (laughs) they are literally dressed exactly the same way. I have no idea, but I do know that those two get up to clearly a lot of hate squabbling. (laughs) (laughs) That is quite true. The other thing I wanted to bring up with this episode is when we get the press guys coming in, we also get introduced to Channing. And he's just kind of there hanging in the background at first, and you don't really notice him. And he starts coming to the fore through the episode. The press guys ask, is this guy with you? And none of them know who he is. And then suddenly he's kidnapping the doctor. With his creepy face. Very creepy face. I liked it and I didn't like it at the same time because he's very creepy and I love that introduction of him. But they don't do a very good job of connecting like him trying to kidnap the doctor and why that fits in with the rest of his plan. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. I I was... I could not figure that out either. I'm like, so so he knew who the doctor was before the significance of him? I think he was just assuming. I think he, okay, this guy was found out there. They're saying he's some sort of alien. Let's grab him. We're not busy enough with our big plan. Yeah. It just didn't connect the dots. Yeah. Another bonus with him was that he did give us a scene displaying the amazing way that an English person will tell someone to get the hell out of a payphone and that they'll do it in the most (laughs) polite way possible. (laughs) it's very passive aggressive yes (laughs) i kind of like that there's so much unexplained at the end of episode one overall the story is still very much a mystery we know about the meteorite but how's this weird guy tied into it the doctor's barely said a word and isn't yet coherent and yet they're trying to kidnap him and units are also involved i mean it definitely left me wanting to keep watching and wanting more i would like to ask julie what did you think of the musical piece in this episode that I like to call Wheelchair Escape? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I liked all the music. Every once in a while, it goes a little bit over the top, but it works, so I'm okay with it. But that whole wheelchair race was phenomenal. Like, the whole thing. That is more wheelchair-based action than we've seen in the entire show so far. <laughs> it's very, very true. Speaking of not music, but sound, did anyone else feel like there was kind of a problem with how they recorded a lot of the dialogue? Yes. Yes. Okay, not just me. I found it very difficult to understand, not just from a West Country accent point of view, but just from a recording (laughs) standpoint. I'm like, that's not done very well. Yeah, again, this was moved to shooting on location last minute, so it it might be... And all their cameramen, Mm -hmm. usual cameramen, were striking. So kind of done with the skeleton stuff and people who weren't really used to doing it. And they obviously weren't going to go down like a movie approach where they actually did voice work afterwards to put on top. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) This is Doctor Who. They don't have the budget for that. (laughs) The last question I want to ask before we move into episode two is, as we're moving into the cliffhanger, 
The doctor gets shot and one unit soldier says to the other, who told you to fire, you stupid? And then the music cuts in. What do you think he was about to say? (laughs) (laughs) No, we're not going to touch that. We're not going to touch that. Are you implying that it was edited in that manner for the sake of humor as the show is providing a cutesy way of censoring itself? Yes. Because they didn't pick up on that line at all during the second episode. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's a different line. I totally think that he was about to drop the C-bomb right there. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very British thing to do. Yes. I think about the cliffhanger and something immediately popped in my mind. And I know this in the sound. I believe this was done in Curse of the Fatal Death. But how amazing would it have been if all this setup, first episode of The New Doctor with Pertwee, and right there, they shoot and kill him and immediately regenerates into another character. <laughs> he only, Pertwee only does the nope. first episode of the entire serial. about to say almost the same thing, except we never really get a good look at the quote-unquote New Doctor's face in the first episode, and we don't up until near the end, and it's not until he's shot that he actually regenerates into Pertwee. <laughs> it's just somebody else. And from here, we get the unusual rumor that Ron Moody actually agreed to do it, but after one episode, decided it wasn't for Uh, him. See, see, fandom would go nuts. Actually, a friend of mine, Andy Frankham-Allen, who now actually is the creative director of the Hazeman Estate, so owns the rights to the Brigadier, he got his start in Doctor Who writing with some fan fiction where the Doctor was killed in this story, and there was an alternate fourth Doctor from here on in. I don't know if that's still out there. Episode two. Yes. Episode, Episode two. two. I love the cut when they answer the question of, is he alive here? Where they cut to the doctor and literally the doctor who is working on the doctor. I could have been more clear there. <laughs> you the, could have, yes. The one that keeps jumping to conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> He's very good at that. He's more unconscious than anyone I've ever seen before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's he not dead. Be, He's just very he unconscious. He must be doing it on purpose to spite me. <laughs> it was all very interesting but it was one of those instances where i'm just like well this is exactly what happened with the 10th doctor just passed out on the bed yeah all right Mm -hmm. you can definitely see how new who takes a lot of different elements from this it's Mm kind of weird because there's certain episodes and things you really like and then you discover they've just been cribbing off of somebody else's (laughs) homework the entire time i mean i wrote down like four stories that rips chunks of this off just off the top of my head. That's sad. And what's even better is this just rips off chunks of other shows. I mean, all the hospital stuff is straight out from the very first episode of Adam Adamant Lives. All of the meteorites and factory stuff is straight out of Quatermass 2. And yet it's all kind of been smushed together and turned into some absolutely iconic Doctor Who. There's a quote I saw about writing Doctor Who and they were giving advice to someone else. I said, all you need for a good script is an original idea, but it doesn't have to be your original idea. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yep. That sums it up. And one thing that I'm pretty sure had probably been done before, but why did it have to have creepy baby doll heads? Creepy babies. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) That factory assembly line scene is incredibly unnerving. That's wonderful. As, As well it's supposed to be. When we see the character we come to know as John Ransom is being shown around, the woman who's guiding him up to the office she has like this very slight plasticky sheen to her face Mm -hmm. and it's never quite established whether or not 
she is an auton or whether she's human it's obviously meant to be implied that she's an auton but we never get that explicitly i think it is because he just asks her are you new and just the double meaning of that is hilarious yeah no she's 100 percent auton i love the music here in this whole sequence with ransom and there's like this awesome like cello music that gets played it's just kind of creepy and wonderful and i loved it and it works really well with the scene and we've got kind of Channing lurking in the background and this is the first time we see him like directly tied to the meteorite business. And we also get one of our favorite story elements of mind control. Mind control, Yay. yes. As Hibbert is clearly under the influence of something. I think we have a new companion to talk about. I think we need to raise the question of when we look at the scene between Liz Shaw and the Brigadier, first question is, is Liz Shaw the original Scully? And two, does Lethbridge Stewart's uniform, does it really need a belt? I think it does. (laughs) I thought he was a little bit rude to her. Yes, he was. Lethbridge Stewart was in this still competent, but a little bit less likable than he had been in the second Doctor era. That's true. I think he's got this air of, oh my god, I've got to sort this out, but no one seems to want to believe what I'm saying. These people are idiots. That's kind of an air about him, and Liz shores in on that. Plus she does like to poke him a little bit, which is funny. Yeah. yeah. She does. It's wonderful. I love her being so skeptical about the doctor because as a scientist it's 100% logical as to why she would not trust that this guy is an alien she's skeptical about everything she's skeptical about the idea of units I think in episode one she says I'm not interested in doing security work and invisible ink and that kind of thing so she's skeptical about what unit does she's skeptical about the extraterrestrial pieces of this story you know I like this I like this side of her it's like I said she's the OG Scully that's what she yeah. is. And what's nice about it is that it's done in such a way that she doesn't frustrate me. Yeah. Every time she's skeptical, it's like, well, based on what you've seen, yeah, I'd be skeptical too. Not like those instances where it's like, oh my gosh, it's right in front of your face. How can you not see it? I think it also has a lot to do with the fact that when she's skeptical, she's not mean or rude about it. She just finds what she hears to be silly and she laughs it off instead mm-hmm. of being kind of irritated and grouchy about hearing things. That she doesn't believe in. Yeah, she just wants proof. I think we have to talk about the doctor in the shower. Thank oh, you. please. Yes. Oh, my God. I don't understand the shower thing. I don't understand how this bathroom is set up. I don't understand them just, like, kind of looking at him while he's taking a shower. Like, the whole sequence was really bizarre to me. Kind of nearly showing his butt. There's that tattoo, <laughs> which I'm sure there's an entire series of young adult novels, and at least five <laughs> big finishes have been devoted to that stupid thing. Do you want to know the real no, life story I, no, about I, Pertwee's tattoo? Yes, he got it when he was in the Navy. Yeah, he got drunk, blacked out, and the next morning he woke up with a tattoo. Doesn't remember getting it. And they couldn't they couldn't afford to block it out with makeup for the shots. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was in the shower. The makeup would have run, right? <laughs> also... I know this, the shower wasn't in the original script. They had it there on the set where they were shooting at the live place. Wow, that's so cool. How can we work this in? Because it, really? it looked neat. Yes. that You taught me something. I didn't know that. I am here to educate and entertain and <laughs> throw in testicle jokes whenever possible. <laughs> Just to be clear, if you couldn't see very well, the tattoo is that of a cobra. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and write your fan fiction explanations now. Oh, they're out there. I bet. Continuing on this theme, who in the hospital dresses like that? And why did he come from the opera? Why did he come from the opera? Why is our, our previous little hobo doctor, why is he now Liberace's more flamboyant magician uncle? 
<laughs> when did this happen? I think the guy was like some higher up of some like board for the hospital. I thought he was the senior specialist that they were calling in to look at the doctor. But that wasn't even his frilly shirt. That was someone else's frilly shirt. Yes, it was. Was it? That's fair. Because he was like yeah. wearing a tie yeah. or something. Either. I don't know. That's just weird. Also, considering how many people in this hospital accuse other people of pulling pranks, how often are real <laughs> are real pranks pulled here? <laughs> if that's the first conclusion you jump to, something's going on. And this hospital is going to lose its accreditation. That's all I'm saying. I feel kind of bad for that senior doctor specialist type fellow, right? He shows up in his nice car and his fancy clothes to see our doctor, who's meant to be unconscious. And his patient steals some of his clothes and other bits and pieces, and then also steals his car. <laughs> this is he... definitely that guy's worst day at work in a long time. Well, by the end, he eventually gets the car back. So that's... We're nice. told he does, that he well, might. True. If someone stole my car and I didn't get it back for two days, I would have two days of being really pissed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we also get another instance of the doctor, you know, trying on hats because he has a thing about hats. It's always about hats. Yeah. This is the first of, I think, I might be misremembering, three instances where the doctor takes his clothes from a hospital. Yeah, it happens in 11th Hour, it happens in the 8th Doctor movie, and I had one more written down, but it's escaping me. Is it happening in Smith and Jones? No. No, he already has it. Yeah, yeah. right. But he does steal clothes from hospitals a lot, it's kind of a problem. Yes, <laughs> hospital-specific kleptomania. <laughs> now we're starting to get a little bit more of his character because he's not unconscious all the time, or not with a tape over his mouth while he's escaping on a wheelchair does anyone else think that in this episode in particular the third doctor his personality comes through and he seems more sure of himself than the second doctor and also he awfully when he sees himself for the first time he definitely seems to be more vain than the second doctor <laughs> i don't think we see the third doctor's personality in this story no not no. yet he does mm -mm. he does mug for the mirror though he's pulling yeah. faces but every single line he says sounds like something the second doctor would say necessarily think it's what the second doctor would say but it doesn't sound like a doctor way of saying things honestly i find him to be a fairly bland character mm. in I, this serial. i don't think he had it down yet i know that when this was written i think holmes just wrote it for the second doctor and assumed that perky would figure it out there are certain lines that i can hear troughton saying like when he asks Liz, do I have to call you Miss Shaw? Can I call you Liz? There's a certain exactly. cadence in there that I can really hear Troughton mm. nailing. Well, also, that's just the second Doctor's personality. You know, do I, do I really have to call you Miss Shaw? And I would respond if I were, well, no, you have to call me Dr. Shaw. <laughs> but, you know. Very much so. But I did like him when he tracked down Unit with his tracking device watch we've never seen before. When he basically just is all belligerent to the guard. I'm not giving you my name. I want to see see the Brigadier right now. Yeah. That was kind of his own little doctor moments, just by the sheer force of his personality blustering his way in. One thing I really want to talk about here is the Jeep crash. Oh, oh mm -hmm. okay. okay. We have Unit recovering a sphere and an Auton shows up, but I think what's so striking here is it's incredibly graphic. Yeah. Yeah. 
there's blood on the windshield basically saying yes we're in color look red <laughs> um but it also kind of shows that this is kind of a much mat- more mature version of the show because there are a lot of on-screen deaths that happen throughout the serial that's just the first one yeah. I-, I started to note it by the end of the third episode i was like man there's a lot of people dying and then i get to the fourth episode i'm like there's still a lot of people dying <laughs> getting dark but hey, how about we have to give some credit for the work by Yul Brynner playing the Auton. It was excellent. <laughs> and very terrifying. I also want to talk about General Scobie. It's been a while since I've been to Madden to Swords in London, but I don't recall many military officers having <laughs> waxworks on display. And equally, the, you see it happening and you're just sitting there thinking, yeah, no good's going to come of this. It's clearly part of the Auton plot, which they just arrived to work on like six weeks ago in story time. So that's Mm -hmm. pretty impressive that they've already gotten a little display at the Sodes. But it is weird to say, hey, look at all these wax dummies of civil servants. That's not (laughs) why you go to a waxworks. Oh, no. That's the Secretary of the Interior. I've always wanted to see this. I I think that was like an interesting thing because there was probably a push from this plastic making company that said, hey, look, we're going to create you some plastic works instead of wax works. I'm pretty sure they probably were just said, and these are the ones we're giving you. Hope you weren't expecting anything different. Here's some politicians. I I guess. I mean, I see where they're going with it so they can move these plastic automatons into their places of government to help create chaos. But that whole plot line kind of just fades off at the end. Yeah, it's just used for Scobie, ultimately. I'd like to have a scene where the museum calls the factory and says, you keep sending us these these (laughs) leaders. Could you give us like some film stars or sports? Give us... Give Sports us the Beatles, people. man. Yeah, we want come the Beatles. On. Yeah, come on. The unfortunate thing is that they chose all of these civil servants and things of that nature, but never once do you see them animated because the other mannequins get animated. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we'll get there. We'll get there. Going back to what Anthony said earlier, and this is where I think it looks very, very good. Scobie, after he gets switched out, that makeup is excellent. I don't think we're that there yet. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, we aren't? No, oh. no, we're yeah. no. we're at Ransom. He's just... Ransom who went no, no. over the yes. fence, and then... Oh, oh that's okay. right. Yeah, the yes. thing comes in, and I gotta say, because no one else will, I love the carpet in that room where he gets attacked, <laughs> where the nesting is there. It's got that weird pattern on it. I don't know why I really like it. That's not a way to lead up to a cliffhanger. I'm sorry. I was going to say, welcome to the carpets in Doctor Who podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that cliffhanger's wonderful. Oh, you know, yeah. as, as Ransom goes into his old office and you see it filled with autons and he's looking around and one behind him just starts moving and it's so creepy I it really it. is it's an excellent cliffhanger and yeah it was awesome and in the next episode episode three there's one of my yes. favorite shots in the entire serial and it's so stupid but i love it so it's after ransom has escaped because he keeps going down the stairs while the auton does something else because it was pretty close to him. And it's at the top Mm -hmm. of the stairs, and Channing looks up at him, and the Auton, its head just falls forward, and it looks so ashamed of itself. (laughs) Yeah. It it just made me laugh. It was so good. It's like it's been scolded like a naughty child. Yeah, like, oh, you let him go. I'm sorry. Just great. (laughs) That said, we do see the Auton run, which I don't think is something we're used to seeing monsters doing. That's part of the reason they're so terrifying. That and they're kind of like a mockery of the human form the weird thing is is i feel some of them run better than others 
<laughs> oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, they're made in six weeks. There was a rush. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Sure. They didn't have great quality control. Right. Yeah, we need to get into that factory and operational excellence the shit out of it. <laughs> <laughs> what do we get next? We get Liz and the doctor working together to try to analyze the little thing they got, and the doctor's like working on her to try and get his key back. I like all that interaction. Even though I don't think the doctor has a huge personality at this point, I do like the interactions that he has with Liz. And she seems to like him more than she likes a brigadier, like off the bat. Oh, absolutely. Well, he's a fellow scientist. You yeah. know, they can they can get together and do science. We do get ransom coming into unit after his experience in the factory and giving an exposition dump to the brigadier, which is a nice kind of way of, in case you're tuning in for the first time this week, <laughs> this is what's happened. Yep. Out of everything he just saw, he is still less sweaty than the guy at the beginning. And that's impressive. <laughs> it is It is definitely true. But And then we keep going back and forth between all these different groups. But when Liz... First off, Lethbridge Stewart was dumb for just letting the key sit on his desk. True. Oh my god, yes. That was idiotic. I don't understand why he didn't have it in his pocket. And then... <laughs> And the doctor goes in and tries to make the TARDIS work and it just sounds and it dies. And I'm like, poor baby. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was disappointed out. that he didn't at least give Liz a look inside. Just a peek. Go look. Hey, I'm not completely full of crap. Look at how big it is in here. But nope, not a single interior shot. Well, one, there's not going to be an interior shot because they didn't have any set work. Yeah, yeah, I know, so I know. There's that. And then the other thing, too, is depending on how things go in the future, it might just be that they're holding out for that. I don't know, because I haven't seen any of these. I'm still going to be disappointed. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you, Julie. I know. Then we get some more of Sam and his wife. Oh, my God, they hate each other so much. <laughs> so much. I mean, at this point, it's like, guys, just get divorced. <laughs> Uh, no, 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 no. They are that, that hateful old married couple that they would never, ever leave each other. You know this. Yeah. If they divorce, it might make the other one happy. And they cannot have that. <laughs> I was going to say, the only thing that's keeping them alive is their hate for each other. <laughs> the other thing that I commented on was when Sam left her by herself at the farm. I guess it's a farm. And then I hear the dog barking. I'm like, nothing better happen to that dog because I'll be very upset. But then they never actually came out and said that the dog was okay. It barks, then it yelps and goes quiet. So it's kind of implied that it's... But you can headcanon that it was just knocked unconscious. It's okay. Yeah. The dog lives. No more dead dogs. I mean, we know Mrs. Seeley, once the Auton catches up with her, she was only knocked unconscious. She was fine. And she was like hitting that guy with a shotgun. So the dog, yeah, it's yeah. fine. Dog's fine. Shut up, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that. Like seeing her shoot the Auton, she shoots it several times and it does nothing beyond just like damage its clothes and it just keeps coming. Again, that's, they're doing everything here to make these things really creepy. I really want to know how they work on the inside now though. How are they moving? Like, what is it machinery? Is it just alien tech? Like, I'm really curious. I want to know how that, how it all works. I think it's established in the RTD era that they're just solid plastic that is animated by the Nestine consciousness's affinity for the substance. But they've got guns in their hands, so that's a little odd. Yeah, I don't know. There's definitely some bullshit there. Yeah, <laughs> but that's okay. I did kind of like the image of the Auton basically breaking and entering and rifling through the house. I don't know why. 
Just such a common <laughs> crime for this sci-fi creature. Just as we think bullets can't stop it, how the hell a eunuch gonna be able to deal with this thing once they come across it? Channing recalls it because he's not ready for a confrontation. I mean, there is no way that eunuch could have stopped it at this point of the story. But it hoofs it out of there. Yeah, and then kills Ransom on the way back to the factory. Poor Ransom. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Poor guy. I mean, he just keeps getting bad luck throughout the entire thing. First, like, his <laughs> business plan is broken up and he doesn't know why. Creepy things start happening. He gets terrified and terrified. And once he thinks he's safe, he gets vaporized. What bad luck. Right. Total destruction. Yes, not just, not just any destruction, but total destruction. Channing looked like he was taking great pleasure in ordering total destruction. When they had that extreme close-up on him. <laughs> yeah, the and he's almost like smirking as he says yeah. it. It's one of those sad things too, because I, I kind of liked Ransom. I was kind of rooting for him. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a part of me that's like, but he was just a guy who was scared of everything. But he like <laughs> went back because he was like, how dare they fire me? I need to go figure. So I'm like, <laughs> he at least had some backbone. So I was, I was rooting for him. Even if nothing had been going on, there would have been some security there and perhaps some press charges. <laughs> how dare you fire me? All right, unit at the plastics factory. There is a shot that I really want to call out where we have the brigadier in front of some is it channing behind the glass it's channing behind the glass yeah. isn't it but yes channing behind that like folded plexiglass yes. and you see his image all distorted that was so cool that's one of my favorite <laughs> shots of this whole serial was was that one yeah it was so good if i want to be snooty i can be like ah oh, channing's distorted much like the autons are a distorted image of humanity no don't do that <laughs> can you cut that out riley we have, we have no need for that uh, that was that sounds like inside the actor's studio on that one <laughs> wanker everyone else is thinking <laughs> well let's see if i can top it in the next scene when they're grilling hibbert uh, what i found really interesting was the composition of the shot when they're grilling hibbert because if you look at this liz and the brigadier are up close and they're doing all the action the doctor's in the background. He's not really involved. And when I saw that, and I thought all that has happened before, you know, earlier when he tried to escape in the TARDIS, the doctor is in this story, but he doesn't want to be in this story <laughs> at all. Yeah. He doesn't want to be involved. He wants to leave. I mean, it's like, it's so clear. He's stuck in a story being forced to be the hero, and he doesn't want to do it. And you can see it in that composition right there. He just wants to leave this conversation and go and drive his stolen car. That's yes. all he wants to and do. And then try and figure out how to fix the TARDIS so he can get off this godforsaken rock. To be yeah. fair, I really like the car too, so I'd probably steal it. You better. <laughs> <laughs> we have another autumn-based cliffhanger with Scobie coming face-to-face -face with his own duplicate. This shiny, right, this shiny duplicate. Yeah, this is, yeah. This is the makeup that looks great and is so wonderful. I'm just really impressed with it. It's just, it's so easy. They could have gone so far overboard with it, but I do think it keeps itself in a nice, perfect balance where it's not over the top. It's just wonderfully creepy where if you're not paying close enough attention, you wouldn't notice it. But if you're really looking like, yeah, there's something off, which is exactly what the Altons are supposed to be like, the feeling they're supposed to create in you. And this is another example of an element of something else that's been lifted. This is pretty much straight out of the James Bond movie Thunderball. I forgot about that plot line in Thunderball. And, you know, it, as Don said, you need a good idea. It doesn't have to be your own. Or was it an original it idea? It was an Don? original was idea. It doesn't have to be your original idea. I, I think the, yeah. the effect is basically the same. 
Yep. That takes us into episode four. I really love the way here that you start to see the Doctor and Liz bouncing ideas off of each other and coming to conclusions, and they figure out the intent of the nesting consciousness together. They're starting to vibe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is good. And it's nice to have someone else who's intelligent because we just moved off from Zoe. But this is different than Zoe. Yes. I'm not saying that it's not different, but at least we're not getting someone who's screamy like Victoria or or Susan. And we get them going off to do some investigating together. You know, they're becoming quite the team pretty quickly. They go to Madden to Swords. I love this bit right here because when they're talking, one of the mannequins directly behind Liz, it's a lady in blue. She blinks. (laughs) Really? I didn't notice that. They're actually all, they're a a little bit wobbly at times because I feel sorry for these people having to stand there and just not move the (laughs) entire time. So there's a little bit of movement, but she's the only one I saw that actually blinked. I've lost track of how many times I've seen this story because it was one of the earlier VHSs I've got. I bought it maybe seven times. It's come out on different formats and I have never noticed that. So I will be looking out for that next time. It's kind of a nice little moment. Yeah, and of course they stay at Madame Tussauds after dark. Of course they do. Security in that place must be terrible. (laughs) I mean, it's just Madame Tussauds, and it's back in this, what, like 60s, 70s, whatever. There's probably one security guard who's like, ugh, these people, they don't treat me well, so I'm just going to sit in my office and drink tea and ignore everyone. (laughs) I was thinking he was high, but, you know, probably not a good idea to be a security guard and getting high in a wax museum. (laughs) at at night probably not probably a bad idea i'd kind of forgotten the idea behind everyone else standing around scoby so initially i thought all right these are all the civil servants that channing and company have already replaced but then it's kind of revealed that these are actually the originals and haven't yet been replaced or at least it's implied that Mm -hmm. and i was like damn that's weird yeah, it is a little odd because he's the real person and they're the autons and it makes a nice scene. I tried not to think about it too hard. Going on at the same time as the Doctor and Liz are at Madame Tussauds, we get a little bit of expert around Channing having built the tank and that the consciousness will adapt itself for its environment. And he sends Replica Scoby to go and pick up the Swarm Leader from the unit. I really love the nesting in the tank where it's it's almost like an eyeball in the middle, but it's got these stretch things out and they've got stuff over it. So you can't get too good of a look at the prop. I love that thing. Yeah, it's quite unique. I had seen this very, very long time ago and I do not remember that in particular, but it was quite striking and like pulsing that it has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Nice. I called it the space sphincter. <laughs> I would like to point out to Julie, that wasn't me. (laughs) I mean, so far, Riley's been the best one on this episode. So, Riley, you're winning. For most mature? Yes. Put that on the metrics. (laughs) (laughs) End of season award. Award for most Most and least immature. immature. (laughs) (laughs) When the Doctor and Liz are around Madame Tussauds and... Channing and Hibbert show up, they freeze in place. And again, watching this as a kid, I assumed that they were pretending to be waxworks. And before I saw this in HD, I didn't realize that they were just trying to be very still behind a curtain so that Channing couldn't Mm -hmm. see them. I always thought they were just pretending. I really liked that as a kid and was disappointed when I realized (laughs) that wasn't the case. (laughs) But oh well. It was interesting to see the doctor appeal to Hibbert in a way of explaining to him, like, you're being mind controlled. Just 
Try to work yourself out of it. <laughs> just <laughs> snap out of it, man. Just, come on, just just try harder. Have you That's thought all. about <laughs> not being mind controlled? <laughs> <laughs> that was exactly the joke I was about to make. Don, <laughs> sorry, you just got there first. <laughs> Let's talk about the iconic piece. So we, we get the Doctor and Liz kind of setting the scene. They've clearly been working through the night. And then it cuts to that wonderful panning shot of the department store with all of those shop window dummies in place. I'm just curious as to what the plan was, because the original plan was that they were going to wake up some of the autons. Okay, that's fine. But the assumption was everyone's thought process was the ones that are in that museum. Then all of a sudden there's some in department stores. Allow me to try to explain probably <laughs> poorly. They were going to have the department store, not as human looking autons, attack the populace. At the same time, your civil servant look just like humans, but a little shiny autons were going to take over from the people they'd copied so that the government would not have a proper response to the weird auton threat. That works. Yeah. <laughs> Headcanon accepted. Okay, that's what uh, I got out of it. All right. I was going to say, that scene is so iconic that Russell T. Davies poached it for when he brought the series back. That he did. And mm. didn't do it nearly as well. It's the fact that you've got these plastic monsters, but they're in 60s fashions, 60s, late 70s. Yeah. You know, they've got their scarves, their bright shirts, <laughs> and their wigs. And their name tags? Yes, and their name tags. <laughs> it's brutal seeing them on the streets. I mean, this goes into what we were talking about earlier with the death count in this story. Yes. I mean, when they just gun down people at a bus stop, holy shit. And you were saying how iconic it was. It was so iconic it was actually used in the Lego Dimensions video game level what? of Doctor Who. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. I haven't played that, so I didn't know. There's other tidbits, but that is in there, and that was wonderful. I would like to point out also, this is 1970. I wonder... The idea of mannequins coming out of their displays and killing human beings on the street, it kind of reminds me of the same anti-consumerism themes from Dawn of the Dead that came out in 19, I think, 78 or 79. And I wonder if Romero may have seen this and like, you know what? I kind of like this idea, this anti-consumerism message of things like attacking us like that. I'd like that. So we get one of Riley's favorite things, which is a unit shoot 'em up battle. Oh, while the doctor and Liz are, are taking their sonic device to do battle. The Deus Ex MacGuffin. Yes, yes. Which, if they had just stopped talking and used it, it probably would have worked out better. I like the little dish on it, the little like that satellite was, dish. That was on nice. It. Yeah. Adorable. I, I have a question. So this was directed by Derek Martinus, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. I like how you can tell the exact point where he handed over directorial duties to Ed Wood for the finale. <laughs> oh, I wonder what part you're talking about, Don. I, I'm I talking wonder. about what I call the ham and octopus scene. <laughs> <laughs> I yes. did not understand this. Like, everything is going well. I'm like, all right, this is all understandable, all understandable. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, why do we have tentacles? Yeah. I actually heard myself go... Oh, <laughs> when it happened. Like, no, no, why is this happening? Channing activates the tank. We get these kind of otherworldly howls followed by a tentacle attack. I mean, it's very Lovecraftian. No, and no, then we no. Get just because it's tentacles, it's not Lovecraftian. 
I was combining it with the otherworldly howls to get Lovecraft, uh, to be fair. I can appreciate the effort, Anthony, because I would like it to be that way too, and I can see where you're going with that, but... No. <laughs> uh, maybe if it wasn't that color green, like Pete's Dragon. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe if it had a Boston accent and was extremely racist, then maybe <laughs> you can go for the Lovecraftian angle, but this is not trying hard enough. We also get our first example of another Poe era trope, and that's the John Pertwee gurning scene. The, the, the ham portion of the ham and octopus. Yeah. We get a lot of that over the next five seasons. Oh boy. Oh boy. Other than it just taking a little bit of time, it's very easy to defeat the nesting. Yeah, Liz fires the machine and the space butthole blows out. <laughs> this actually really reminded me of Monster of the Week, honestly. Like other than the doctor waking up in like the first episode or two, it then just devolves into, oh hey look, it was a monster. Hey hey look, we defeated it. Yeah, I think with this one, the monster plot is somewhat secondary to introducing John Pertwee, reintroducing Unit, introducing Liz. There's a lot to do here, and I don't think the Autons and the Nestine consciousness were ever meant to be recurring monsters they were meant to be the monster of the week julie just because this had so much else to do i think it does a better job of building up unit and liz than it does of introducing the doctor because like riley said he yeah. just doesn't seem to want to be there yet exactly but we do get a nice little john smith callback at the end so yeah. we do uh, that after the doctor negotiates with the brigadier for facilities equipment clothes and a car I mean, he's playing hardball here. But no money. Yeah. But no money. I mean, he negotiated parking into his agreement, I'm sure. Did he negotiate food? Because I feel Probably. like that's important as well. I mean, this is the 1970s and it's the military. He just eats at the mess with everyone else. Oh, man. Sleeps in the barracks. <laughs> you know. But yes, I do love the, the Dr. John Smith, followed by closing credits. Two things about the closing credits. Firstly, we've never had like an actual designed closing credits before. It's just been the titles over a black screen. So that's cool. And I also noticed that they've done away with the middle eight in the closing theme. Yeah. Which I was not happy about. I get annoyed every time they change the music, so. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I barely touched on it, but the opening credits, they did that weird thing towards the end of the opening credit, and I'm like, I don't like that. <laughs> I think you'll have to get used to that. <sighs> Before we rate this, I have my obligatory question. Is John Pertwee the Doctor yet? Riley? When I saw this originally many, many years ago, my answer would have been yes. Now, my answer is maybe. The official answer then would be not there yet, but damn close. Let's say, come on, dude, you didn't say Troughton was the Doctor until like the Underwater Menace. I know, but there's something about the third Doctor. You know, we all have our preferences. All right, Julie, no. is he the Doctor yet? No. <laughs> she answers Done. before the question's made. Done. Not yet. I'm with you. He's not there yet. That's promise, but he's not there yet. So we're all agreed, not there yet, but I think I'm closest. <laughs> okay. In complete reverse of the Troughton era. All right, let's rate this story. This story has an iconic status in fandom, and it is a really good story. It sets the scene well. It's got this wonderful creepiness to the first basically three episodes and almost lands the plane in the final episode, but just misses. We get unit we get liz shaw we get the new doctor and his gadgets while he doesn't quite feel like the doctor yet he's gonna slowly get there 
overall, I think this does a lot and it's enjoyable. I found myself wanting to keep watching. It didn't feel like a slog to get through four episodes, which sometimes it can, at least in one sitting. So for me, this one gets eight meteorites out of 10. Don, over to you. I'm in complete agreement with all that you just said. There's a lot of heavy lifting to do here because they are essentially soft rebooting the show. Any changes I would have made, I discussed at the beginning. I think they could have made something of the mystery of whether this guy is really the doctor or not. I consider that a missed opportunity. I think the nesting consciousness and the Autons are really just a cool looking visual enemy. And the guy that played Channing, just his face just looked creepy and that worked. So I am also giving this eight shamed Autons out of 10. (laughs) Okay, Julie. For many of the reasons already stated, this is a good kind of opening sequence. But for me, there was just something missing from it. I'm probably the person who thinks this is least like the Doctor. I think he was fairly bland. Again, he was asleep for a good portion of two episodes. But I did enjoy it and the music was really good. But I'm going to give it seven and a half creepy dolls out of ten. All right. And last but not least, Riley. It's been said before, it's hard to read a serial that is basically a pilot or a repilot. It has so much work to do. So the cost of that is not being able to really have a complicated plot. The Autons and the Nesting, I enjoy them and in concept they're great, but their plan is as basic as you can get. You know, world domination, blah, 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 blah. Outside of the plot, the serial does a good job. It provides the backbone for the show going forward. Unit gets notified of something unusual. The Doctor and Liz have a mutual respect through science. And the Brigadier brings the troops together to have long shootouts. The dynamic of the Doctor and Liz is interesting. The Brigadier acts as kind of like a flustered, amicable, like school principal type trying to keep those two crazy kids from getting into too much trouble. You can see it all being set up. And at four episodes, it's concise, has fun gags, good creepy bits, and it got what it needed to be done, done. I give it seven and a half Killer Yule Brinners out of ten. Well, that gives us a story average of 7.75, which actually makes it the second strongest season opener that we've had after the Tomb of the Cybermen. But with that, this is a long episode and we are sadly out of time. We'll be back next time for the uniquely titled Doctor Who and the Silurians. We hope that you'll join us again for that. But for now, thank you very much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Filipek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Liberace's more flamboyant magician uncle, was recorded on Wednesday the 9th of June 2021. If this is your first time listening, all of our previous episodes are available on your favourite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. And you can email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favourite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, if you ever find yourself waking up from a coma, make sure that you know where your shoes are.